From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, David Barton Grimley, Strategy Director at 11FS. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? This week, we're talking about Robinhood are finally coming to the UK, and you can join the waiting list today as a blast from the past after the GameStop controversy years ago. Robinhood are rearing their head in the UK and wanting to compete with incumbents. It's a competitive market. What does it look like? Do we think they will be able to carve out a space for them to play? Next, we talk about Wise and Alicabank. Wise partnered with Alicabank to support cross-border payments for SMEs. Cross-border payments are a huge issue for SMEs all over the world, um, and it is a massive barrier to growth. We discuss how important it is, how costs can be reduced, and what WISE are doing. And finally, NatWest have launched a new board game to help tackle modern scams. Yes, that's right. A bank has decided that its next product is going to be a board game, and maybe, just maybe, you might want to go to a branch to go play it. We'll get into all this and much more on today's show. Hello and welcome to episode 810 of Fintech Insider. I'm David Barton Grimley, Strategy Director here at 11FS. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some great guests who are here to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, a return to Fintech Insider for Sophie Winwood, co-founder at WVCE and Fintech Investor. Welcome back, Sophie. What have you been up to since you were last on the show? Yeah, so I was in uh, very freezing Helsinki for Slush last week, um, which was, um, yeah, very exciting. A lot of energy around startups. Um, so there's still a lot of really great things going on. And um, fintech was very much um, a theme of, of the conference throughout as well. Awesome. It's great to have you back. And we're also delighted to see the return of Roisin Levine, head of UK and Europe at Wise Platform. It's been a long time coming, but finally, welcome back. Remind our listeners who you are and what you do. Sure. Yes. So I'm Rasheen. Um, I look after UK and Europe for Wise Platform. That means I have the pleasure of working at the part of Wise where we allow other institutions to use our infrastructure. I'm sure we'll come on to that a little bit more later today. Awesome. And last but not least, a big fintech insider hello to Oliver Smith, managing editor and head of content at Altfi. It's great for you to join us, Oliver, as we're rapidly approaching 2024. What's been your story of the year so far, would you say? Oh, uh, I don't know if a story of the year, but definitely trend of the year has been um, a, a repeat of last year, really, profitability. Um, you know, fintechs searching for revenues and profits um, and, and moving towards more profitable sectors. So like B2B is very much front front and center, um, moving away from the more glamorous but less profitable B2C sector. Um, that's been, I guess, the big trend of the year for us. Yep, and I think we're going to be discussing some B2B stuff on the news today, so that would be great. And with that, let's jump into the news. So our main story this week, Robinhood brings its stock trading platform to the UK. This one's from TechCrunch. Early access to the platform via a waiting list is now available in the UK with a full rollout planned in 2024. They launched a waiting list in 2019, but abruptly pulled out of the UK in 2020 without reason. Robinhood have been the subject of many controversies in recent years, as questions around their customer care mounted following a high-profile suicide case in the US. However, in 2021, they launched their IPO as their monthly users spiked to 21 million throughout the pandemic. 
I feel like this is a bit of a blast from the past. I mean, a lot of our listeners will remember some of those controversies from the GameStop bubble. In fact, I'm, I'm sure some, some of us have even invested in that bubble as well, particularly our US audience. Um, Oliver, I'm going to come to you first. Should, should we be excited about Robinhood coming to the UK? It doesn't feel very exciting, does it? It feels like a little bit um, too little too late, maybe, for just a vanilla trading platform. Um, I, I'm curious to see what they come come out with. Um, but certainly, they have missed, I guess, the exciting opportunity to be a first mover. So now they've got to bring something different to the market. And in the US, they do have you know some offerings that aren't as common over here, whether it's options or margin trading. But that opens even more questions about about what that looks like and what the regulator makes of what they're doing. So I'm curious. Wait and see. But I'm yeah, I can't wait to see what they come out with. Sophie, what what do you think? I mean, how are they going to compete with that really competitive landscape? We've got free trade, we've got Lightyear, we've got Hargreaves, Lansdowne, and I'm sure all sorts of others out there. Why wh- why do this? Why, why where do they see the gap in the market here? Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that is that those players are struggling as well. Um, and, you know, free trade recently raised at 60% below their previous valuation. And so these companies that have, um, you know, really thrived in COVID where there was this, um, you know, meme trading and there was people who had were sitting around and like wanted to do something to do. Um, it, it, that isn't the case anymore. It, although the the market is still relatively underpenetrated compared to the incumbent, so there is still room to grow. But given that the competitors aren't thriving in this environment, it is an interesting move. And I wonder if, given the performance of Robinhood's stock price on the stock exchange, that they, they needed this international expansion story to kind of at least fuel the idea that they are growing. And then, you know, we'll have to see how they compete because um, it's, it's, it is essentially the same offering unless they start doing crypto, which, um, which you know, free trade doesn't offer at the moment. And I guess in some ways they can ride on that brand. I mean, everybody knows about them. I mean, even though we haven't had access to them here in the UK, I'm sure there'll be a, a market of people that would be, you know, really happy to immediately open an account and and start trading. And and I guess with all of these providers, there's the community that sits around it as well. But I think the almost sort of bigger question is, is do, do we think they have resolved some of their issues in the US? Oliver, I, su- I suppose over the last couple of years, they've been on and off the news, right? Quite a lot um, as a result of GameStop and all sorts of other um, bubbles as well. As you as you and Alt5 have been tracking them, I mean, what, what have you seen? Have, have they fixed some of these problems, do you think? I, th- I think they've certainly reined in the tendencies they had early on to move fast and break things and maybe not spend so much time thinking about you know, their customers and actually what impact they were having. Um, but at the same time, that is what makes Robin Hood, Robin Hood. And that, that community is, is what led them to where they are now. I guess the question for the UK is, are their natural customers still waiting for them to arrive or are their natural customers all on the other platforms that are available? Um, I suspect the latter, um, which raises the question of who their customer base will be when they arrive in the UK. As Sophie was saying, you know, the incumbents still have, vast control over this market. So there's a big opportunity there for a more serious professional player to maybe break in, but that isn't Robin Hood. So so what I I, I don't really know what they're gonna what they're gonna do. Um yeah. And I, and I think just to to add to that, I think what's really interesting is uh both Free Trade and, and Robin Hood initially were doing this sort of like 
very like day trading sort of quick wins when really the opportunity is this massive uh, generational shift of wealth. And so um, you saw that uh, um, Robinhood actually just launched a retirement um, product. And so I think the real opportunity here is is actually amassing some of that wealth in other more long-term products where the AUM is also bigger. But that takes trust, that takes, you know, um, building up a customer base that has that wealth on hand. And so and that can't happen overnight. So it'd be interesting to see how they navigate that. Mm. It reminds me a bit of the current account market where, you know, early on, everyone used Monzo and Revolut and whatever as their secondary accounts. But actually, the money is getting people to switch their primary accounts. And it's similar in wealth, you know, the day trading stuff is is great, but actually you've got to persuade people to move their their life savings and their retirement money into these platforms. And that's something that I don't think many or any of the challengers have really managed to do just yet. So yeah, maybe there's an opportunity. And we do know that there is that huge gap in the market um, in the UK. Well, I suppose a gap in the amount of money that people are saving for their retirement. So in, in theory, there is something there. But yeah, as, as both of you say, there's definitely a brand um, perception issue and a competitive issue. Rashina, I'm, I'm keen to get your point of view um, working out of fintech for, you know, how do fintechs build and grow trust over time? Um, I think, as, as Sophie said, it's not something that, that always happens overnight. There's no magic. It's a long-term effort. It's many years uh, being transparent with customers, understanding and, and knowing your customer really well, and, of course, working with regulators closely. So for WISE, we've spent you know 12 years building uh, the product that we have that helps move money internationally, but that requires us to have over 60 licenses globally, and there's an awful lot of work that goes into that and maintaining those licenses, um, you know, a thousand plus people in our compliance teams and, and everything else you can imagine with that. So yeah, I think uh, it is a is a long process and you, you must do that as any fintech to kind of grow um, if you want to do so both internationally and your customer base. And obviously that's important. So I think in conclusion, I mean, it takes, you know, time and staying power um, in a very, very competitive landscape. Right. Let's move on to the next news item. So up next, and this one's from AltFi. Alica Bank partners with WISE to bolster cross-border payments for UK SMEs. The partnership means Alica business customers will now have low-cost access to overseas transfers. Using WISE's payments infrastructure, businesses will be able to embed the ability to send, receive, and manage money internationally. The move eliminates costly exchange rate fees for Alica's customers, making cross-border payments more cost-efficient for SMEs. Earlier this year, WISE reported 16 million customers and 9 billion pounds of payments each month. However, this partnership with Alica, as well as its recent collaboration with Swift, signals clear ambition to build on this. Rashina, it's great to have you on the show. Congratulations on the news. And I'd love to start by knowing of all the banks out there, why did you choose to partner with Alica? Yeah, thanks uh, for obviously giving the opportunity to chat a bit more about this. So um, I guess firstly, Alica is a, a very strong player in the uh UK SME market. So um, they actually were recently named, I think, the fastest growing fintech ever in the UK by Deloitte Fast 50. So uh, quick growth and a, a good and strong emerging player in that sense. Um, but ultimately and crucially, they serve SMEs and they serve a sort of a portion of SMEs, which is more the established SMEs. Um, and these SMEs are often overlooked. Um, and I think this has been spoken about a lot, especially by kind of larger banks. And so Alica very much kind of serving this, this niche. Um, and for WISE, ultimately, we are understanding of the fact that we have 60 million direct customers ourselves, but ultimately we've built a network 
work that moves money at a very low cost and a very quick pace. And for us, Wise Platforms, so the part of Wise that, that I work within, is all about actually allowing other institutions to leverage that infrastructure. So for Alica, it's allowing their business customers to be able to make international payments using the rails that Wise has, has kind of established and built in our network um, to be able to have the same experience that, that we allow our customers on Wise.com. Um, and this is really part of Wise Platform strategy. Um, and this is why you'll see the partnership with Alica Bank and, and others that we have with other fintech players and other traditional banks uh, that are starting to use uh, Wise's payment infrastructure. And, and moving forward, are you seeing partnerships as being a really important vehicle for, for growth at Wise? Yeah, 100%. I think what we know and understand is that we will have a direct customer offering and we will grow that offering um, and we service those customers very well. But there is also very good reasons why people will also want to retain their primary bank at times uh, and they will have a lot of their financial life, maybe live within another institution. And the best possible customer experience is to actually be able to do your payment directly from that application. So an example of Alica, if you're an SME that's banking with Alica for any number of reasons, if you want to then make an international payment, it makes the most sense to initiate that payment from that app uh, rather than having to move money to several different apps. And I think this is the, the world that kind of Wise understands is that we will always have uh, direct customers, but we can also service a lot more people and a broader range of people if we partner up. So if our infrastructure is used, um, and it's not often that, that everyone always understands it's actually maybe us powering things behind the scenes. So in some cases they may, in other cases they won't. Um, but this is definitely part of a kind of growth story for Wise very much. I mean, you, you touched on um, just how difficult it is for businesses to make payments. Um, and this is definitely the case pretty much all over the world. And, you know, you could even argue that it, it limits the growth of, of some economies in some cases, actually. If the SME sector is unable to make international payments um, efficiently and smoothly, it can, even, it can even hinder growth. I mean, how much of an issue have you found this at WISE um, to, to be the case? Do you see SME payments as being a big, uh, big growth area for you? Yeah, 100%. So we do uh, a fair amount of kind of research and listening to customers on this subject. I think kind of recently we, we actually conducted a survey and it was interesting to see, I think 46% of the SMEs we serviced um, did operate in some way internationally. So they have suppliers or customers that, that are somewhat global. So they have to do some portion of their business in that sense. But we also found that actually 68% of those businesses that were surveyed uh, were actually putting off some expansion to go abroad to transact more globally, mainly because of some of the hassle and complexity of what they see as kind of international payment services. So it is a problem area in the sense that there are uh, complexities, uh, lack of transparency on fees, um, sometimes slowness on transfers as well, that, that can sometimes be off-putting as well. So uh, the more we can do to, I guess, reduce the, the kind of operational burden, uh, the worries about getting stung with high costs, um, then the better, because then we can see businesses grow and actually do more of what they're really good at rather than kind of worrying about this um, from any perspective of, of kind of worried about fees or anything like that. Oliver, this is, I mean, this is really interesting. And it goes back to what you said, I think, right at the beginning of the podcast is that the big trend is this, this move to, I suppose, B2B. You can include SME payments in this. I mean, and SMEs are beginning to get a lot more attention. From your point of view and what you're seeing, is this a growing market? Is this a case of SMEs have just been massively underserved and everybody's jumping jumping in on it. What, what do you think the story is here? Yeah, I mean, we've seen a dramatic acceleration in the amount of companies looking to support the SME community um, over the last few years. Uh, COVID, but just before COVID, there was the um, 
there's a lot of money put into the sector, um, which I think jump-started a lot of activity. You know, it's great to see the likes of, whether it's Monzo and Starling at the, the lower end, the sole traders, the freelancers. Then you've got Alica, slightly larger kind of companies, multi-direct companies. And then Oak North as well recently announcing that they're working on a, a current account and that's going to be targeted at SMEs with, you know, one to hundred million pound revenues. Um, it, it, obviously, it, there's a lot of support at the lower end, I feel. There's a lot of people targeting the free trade, uh, the sole traders and the freelancers. And then as you go up the, up the spectrum, there's less support. So I, it's nice to see Oak North coming into play. Um, but it's a big market, you know, millions of, of SMEs, which are the backbone of the UK economy, all of which have been underserved over the last few years, um, by high street banks retreating from that market. Um, and COVID, I think really shone a light on, on just how underserved they were. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really nice thing to see. And also it, it does jibe with the profitability point because there's a lot more money to be made in the SME banking market than the, the retail banking market. So it makes a lot of sense. So yeah, we're, we're really excited to see more of it. Sophie, from your point of view, I mean, if you're, you know, thinking about making investments into, into the space, where would you say the, the saturations are beginning to take place and the gaps that might exist in the, uh, in the SME market? Yeah, I think, um, as as Oliver was saying, the, the sort of current account and, and banking is is becoming saturated, which I think is a fantastic thing, to be honest, because it, I think it should have been there slightly earlier than it is. And now we're seeing really exciting innovation on all aspects of the products. I'm going to sh- shout out one of our portfolio companies, which is a company called Ember, which does um, accounting, but on a tax first um, approach. Um, so really enabling you to sort of Take all of those burdens. When you're starting off a business, all you want to do is run the business. You don't want to do the accounting. You don't want to set up a bank account. You don't want to do the HR. And so actually, all of these organizations that are coming in, these new digitally digitally savvy SMEs, and like providing that layer of technology that just makes their job easier and makes the business easier to grow is really, really exciting. And I think the partnerships model is, is absolutely the way forward because... SMEs are really difficult to acquire. They're almost consumer-like in their acquisition. And so the more the industry and ecosystem can collaborate together to build on top of each other and provide partnerships, then I think the easier this this kind of whole move to digitize and support SMEs gets. So yeah, we love the space. We're really excited in innovation, but I think it's got a lot, a lot, um, a lot further to go. Oliver, I'm conscious that a, a lot of the discussion we've been having so far is probably at the smaller end of the, the, the business size, you know, sole traders and small SMEs. And as you scale into much, much larger enterprises, the, the needs get a lot more complex, particularly when I suppose you, th- you know, think about cross-border trade, for example, all of that kind of stuff begins to, begins to come in. I mean, how, how do we really begin to scale these services into much larger enterprises? And, and are you seeing that, that sector grow? Yeah. So I think the reality is that certainly on the sort of sole trader and freelancer side of things, the requirements are not dissimilar from consumer banking. Um, but as the size of the company grows, the complexity grows and the requirements, um, you know, increase exponentially. So that's why the incumbents, although underserving the community, have dominated until now because they're the only ones that have been able to offer the kinds of complexity that these businesses require. Um, but we're seeing a lot of activity on the larger scale. So working on backend, you know, kind of boring backend stuff like treasury management, which is is not something that Monzo, Starling, or, or maybe even Alicabank would get involved with. But 
as you go up the up the spectrum, you know the likes of Oak North have to be thinking about that. What is their what is their um, offering to deal with that or expense management among you know not just dozens but hundreds of employees? Um, so yeah, the problem does get tougher and tougher. But it's great because there's some new companies coming through. There's the likes of Treasury Spring is a good example who are working to solve these problems. Um, and I'm I'm excited to see what happens in that space over the next couple of years because I think it's going to get a lot more exciting and hopefully there'll be some more solutions there for those larger SMEs. I think just to add that, um, I actually um, was got interviewed for a Sifted article at the start of the year about what areas like I was excited about in fintech. And this was the area that I quoted because I think what's interesting is because the SMEs are more digitally savvy and the sales cycle is a lot shorter, is actually quite a quick win. But that sort of, you, you are then dealing with a more complex product and a longer sales cycle which those two in combination are make it more difficult, but then you get rewarded with a larger AOV and the ability to grow into it. And I think that's like a really interesting opportunity for venture. If we can maybe put aside the like profitability thing for a second and actually fund these businesses to build great technology that can then, you know, that will take a bit longer to build, it will take a little longer to sell, but actually the opportunity is huge. Um, then I think that could, um, yeah, I think there's, there's some really interesting and Treasury Spring is a great example. I'm curious actually from, from either of you about this, um, you know, building f- more focused services because actually the difference between a sole trader um, and, you know, a company that's turning over 100 million pounds a year, for example, is so fundamental. And if you look at a company like Oak North, you know, Oliver, you mentioned that they're supporting all of those different types of businesses. I mean, do we think that there is more space to be developing more focused services, maybe like rushing what you guys are doing at Wise, for example? Yeah, I, I'm super excited to see what Oak North come out with. I know it's very early days for them, but the way that they're building it, working sort of very closely hand in hand with their customers, their customers who have these very complex, you know, unique requirements. Um, and I know they've got a great team there. They've, they've sort of, um, brought in some, some uh, sort of faces you may recognize from, from the SME banking community to, to help them build those services. I can't wait to see what they come out with. Um, obviously they're supporting a very small number of customers. Um, and this isn't going to be a mass market sort of thing. Um, but I think it's, it's great to see that activity and obviously their lending business can help support them build that, um, that bank for those larger, larger customers. Roisin, I, I want to give the last word to you on this topic. What's next for Wise? Any inside scoops? Uh, I think it is based on kind of the, the conversation we've had today about the partnership of Alica. I think what you'll see is we'll, we'll have more of these kind of partnerships. So uh, we're often known as, as kind of partnering with many of the digital bank players. So I think some of the names that people are familiar with, things like Monzo and N26 that we kind of power and they use our APIs to you know, provide a payment service. But I think uh, you kind of touched on it earlier, we announced a collaboration with Swift. And I think what this means for us is that we're able to more easily integrate with much larger banks. So larger banks generally use Swift as their way of messaging, initiating payments. Um, and this is why we're looking at that as an area. So um, yeah, more of that, I suppose, from WISE. All right, on that note, we're just gonna take a quick pause here, back shortly. Welcome back. Before we get back into the second half of the news, a note to go to check out our most recent FinTech Insider Insight show. We take a look back to an episode from 2021 where David M. Brer, CEO at 11FS, discussed the future of Australian FinTech. He was joined by a panel of expert guests from FinTech Australia, 
Revolut Australia and Tier 1 People. As fintech becomes more important than ever in the region, we wanted to see how different the landscape is today compared to two years ago and see how right the experts were. So go check out that episode in our podcast feed. It's the one just below this. Right, let's get back to the news. And next up, this is from ETF Stream. N26 partners with Upvest to offer ETF trading. The German digital bank will now be able to offer stocks and exchange-traded funds, that's ETFs, trading to its customers by teaming up with Upvest. According to the reports on ETF Stream, Upvest will provide licenses for securities, brokerage, and custody as part of a compliant investment infrastructure. Upvest are hoping to compete with Revolut, having launched their own $1 trading platform earlier this year. Meanwhile, N26 have been scaling back their banking services, most recently in Brazil. And just actually on that point, um, what are N26 actually doing here? So they have pulled back from Brazil after being there for less than two years. What do we think, Sophie, what do you think N26 are actually doing here? What's their strategy? I mean, I think they're following a similar path to Revolut, really, which is the kind of diversification of offerings across a platform to be the financial super app. Um, that was me, inverted commas, because this is a podcast, you can see me do that. Um, so, and and I think also this, there, you know, there are two vectors to expansions. There's grow your customer base geographically, or there's like get a larger share of your wallet of your existing customers by offering them different products. And actually... If you're a tech company and you are, you know, really having to rationalize your cost, it is better to partner with existing um, companies like Upvest to offer additional products rather than completely enter a new market where you have to hire new people and go to go, go to market and marketing. So I imagine there's a bit of a reaction to the market. There's a bit of a, oh, look at what Revolut are doing, um, let's copy them, um, but also kind of just making sure that they're thinking about how we grow this into more than a, the banking app. And they, and they just got 30 million um, euros in investment from BlackRock. So following that logic, it might make sense that actually, look, let's just grow in a in a much cheaper way as as you mentioned. Uh, Oliver, your, your, your thoughts on this? It, it seems to be a very competitive market again, um, a little bit like the previous example we were talking about with Robinhood, if everyone wants to become a super app, but what's going on here in the uh, in the industry? Yeah, everyone wants to be a super app. Um, uh, yeah, moving to wealth for more, uh, as Sophie said, share of wallet, more revenue. Um, it's it's a strange move. Obviously, competing with Revolut, Revolut, who who also um, I believe use Upvest to do their own fractional ETFs and European stock trading. So it's like the same product just offered through a different service. Um, really, really strange. I guess there's this broader trend of, of, you know, fintech was originally about separating all these services down to their individual pieces. And now we're seeing them all be rebundled back up together. And, and N26 is, is kind of following that playbook, but kind of a bit late to the game because Revolut got there first and N26 has had its problems at home and with expansion in Brazil, as you say, but but also, you know, the UK start stop and, and then being limited on customer growth. Um, it's a really strange one. Uh, and, I, and I think there's also a question here around um, N26 positions itself as quite a serious, you know, primary account, um, but it's now offering equity trading alongside that. And there is a, a, a kind of a, a slight conflict there because you've got a risk 
kind of a risk product sitting next to your savings account. I remember when Monzo, um, you know, let their customers directly invest in their crowdfunding round through the Monzo app um, a couple of years ago. There were these questions asked, which is, should you be allowed to transfer, you know, your paycheck that's just landed in your current account straight into a high-risk equity investment? I think, you know, for Revolut, most of us view it as a secondary account. So maybe those same concerns don't apply. But with N26, it, it does worry me slightly. How are they going to message and manage that in a way that protects their customers and doesn't encourage, you know, day trading on, on the end of the month when you get your pay slip? Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But it, it is a strange play. But then again, N26 is a bit of a strange company. Is it just the case that maybe trading is a little bit cooler, um, Sophie? I mean, why why can't N26, for example, just offer pensions, you know? I, th- I think we should make the differentiation between day trading and stocks and ETFs here because they are different products. And I guess the slight counter I would I would say to Oliver is that, you know, actually there is a big push to get more people investing. Um, yes, a lot of people might say, but they might not in- start investing until a lot later. And actually, if they just put it in like the, you know, FTSE 100 tracker, like that, it, they could accumulate quite a lot of wealth just by putting a small amount of money in each month. And so I think the kind of ETF side is, is you know, it's supposed to be a huge and growing market and it's not necessarily high risk. A lot of the times it's not. It's actually lower risk. It's usually a basket of stocks, lower cost, and it's a way of amassing um, investing and amassing wealth. So as long as there is an education piece alongside it, then I think actually exposure to these sort of products is potentially a good thing. And so in some ways, this is very much unlike what um, Robinhood are doing. This is a different proposition, maybe for a different type of um, customer. And in some ways, it supports maybe the closer link with um, current accounts. Rasheen, what's your point of view on this? Why do you think there is this, this drive to be linking trading with current accounts? In some ways, it's part of the broader partnership, I think, uh, approach towards fintechs that we're seeing all over the shop, in, including with yourselves at WISE. Yeah, I think first things first, there's there's almost certainly customer customer demand and, and N26 will have, have gone into this knowing that. Um, I think I read a little bit on this and actually what surprised me is that they this is a really growing market. So I think it's expected to grow the market of ETFs in Europe by around 32% in the next 12 months. So 6 million new people, new investors using ETFs. And I believe that Germany actually leads the way on that. So there's actually really strong growth. So th- that kind of makes sense from a point of view of thinking about what their customers might want and, and why you might go into that. Um, I agree with the points around partnerships more generally. So absolutely partnering with another firm that has a particular niche or does one thing very well um, is obviously the new way of collaborating rather than building things or, or trying to enter a space, which is, is a very difficult one to, to kind of build from scratch. Um, that's what WISE does, you know, and ultimately why helps N26 on the international payment front and it makes sense uh, to see them collaborating with other firms in this way. Um, So yeah, in that sense, um, it's more of what we're seeing and I'm sure it's direction of travel for a lot of companies. And I suppose the, the other interesting part of it is the the other partner, so Upvest. If if doing this is extremely profitable, what's stopping them from launching their own B2C service in the future? Um, Sophie or Oliver, any thoughts? B2C is hard. (laughs) That is why. 
why would you want to go through that? It's a different business model. You have to build a brand, like marketing, growth, blah. Like if you have a product that you can offer um, and instantly switch on, it's bad, I don't know how many customers N26 has, but that many customers and that suddenly have it and using it, like, yeah, I'd take that path every day. Yeah, all, all the benefits and with none of the downsides. Cost of acquisition is just so expensive, isn't it? Um, and it, it's crazy how many um, you know, fintechs go go out of business just because of the extremely high, sometimes hundreds of, of dollars um, to acquire a customer that may or may not uh, take on and uh, purchase profitable profitable services. Um, all right, moving on to the next news item. Adyen to act as Klarna's acquiring bank. And this one is from Altfi. The agreement will initially cover the North American, Europe, and Asian markets. Klarna customers will be able to harness Adyen's technology to improve the payments process. This is seen as a big step towards Klarna optimizing its shopping services as it rolls out new tools to support creators and retailers run successful e-commerce stores via its website. It's another sign that Klarna are actively moving beyond their buy now, pay later offering. So, I mean, we, we've been talking about Klarna so much um, on this podcast, and I'm sure the entire industry has been been following what they're doing. So we'll, we'll talk about them and, and what their strategy is in a little bit. But let's start with Adyen. So Adyen have been very busy this year. Um, they recently acquired their UK banking license. Um, Oliver, so do you think Klarna is just the first of many high-profile partnerships to come from them? Well, hopefully, for Adyen's sake. Um, I mean, they've had quite a tricky um, stock market time this this year in um, august their share price um, more than halved after their earnings disappointed and there were concerns around their valuation so they need these big client wins to restore um, investor confidence um, and i think they're they're getting them if you look at some of their 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 recent wins it's it's good to see um the question is can they keep going can they keep that pipeline coming along and and kind of what volume of of payments are they going to get from from Klarna um I guess I don't know the answer to that question but maybe we'll find out at their next investor um call or results um but yeah no it's it's great to see them you know coming out with these these partnerships and and do we think Sophie to come to you do we think this legitimizes Klarna as a fintech beyond BNPL I mean we know that for a very long time now they've been trying to push beyond you know, the basic BNPL services, you know, BNPL has got a lot of negative press over the course of the last year, and they're becoming, like everyone else, guess what, a super app or trying to. Does this help to just partnering with an acquiring bank basically help them bypass, you know, getting their own licenses and allow them to to do, to diversify? Yeah, I think, um, you know, given the, the, like, the kind of power they have at, and position they have at checkout with Buy Now, Pay Later, Paired with the regulatory scrutiny they have come um, up against, uh, which I'm, you know, we have talked about at length, um, actually doing the like, buy now, no buy later, um, and kind of being able to monetize that, I think is a really smart move because you you keep your place in the checkout, you diversify your revenue streams. The buy now, pay later revenue streams, they don't, they become less important and they are quite risky. And so diversifying away from that is a good thing. Absolutely, uh, R- R- Roshina. I'm keen to get your your view on this from a from a payment process. So, I, I, I suppose the idea here is that we're we're talking about a simplification of the payment process. According to Adyen's website, a local acquirer can reduce payment refusals, so they have lower fees, higher authorization rates, and they can settle payments faster. So, I suppose 
this partnership makes it much easier for Klarna to process transactions. It's a much smoother customer experience. It makes them more legitimate um, in in the market. What What's your point of view here? I think that from my understanding as well, this is a collaboration that's been going on for some time, but it's just a new kind of aspect to a partnership they've had. So I think that uh, Agin have offered to kind of Klarna product through through their, through that way around. And then now it's actually, I think, Agin helping Klarna and that's out of the acquiring. Um, I guess the interesting part is, is kind of as mentioned, I mean, Klarna, the growth and, and the amazing stats I've seen as well on, on kind of what's happening with them. So 150 million consumers using Klarna products. I mean, 500,000 retailers. Uh, these are obviously really interesting numbers. I'm sure for any partner, um, that's very exciting. So from Agin's point of view, you can see why they'd like to partner in this aspect um and then yeah i think the other sort of exciting parts around Klarna's business is what they can do next so moving away from just that buy now pay later space their app what information they understand how they can you know help people shop in this different way and i think this is clearly the future and, and how they're evolving i think to be honest that's maybe the part that's most interesting yeah, and with that scale, um, there's a there's a lot of profit, I guess, in you know cross border payments um, in in that sense, and and you you alluded to it there in the sense that Klarna are almost trying to become the front door for shopping, full stop, um, on the internet. Oliver, coming to you on this, having you know tracked Klarna over the last couple of years, what what are they trying to do here? Where really, what what does the front door of shopping actually look like for Klarna? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think this partnership is really interesting because it's it's kind of like their frenemies. You know, they both want to be the checkout provider, but the reality is that consumers want the buy now pay later option. So it just makes sense to let Klarna kind of be that that front end piece, and then Adyen can worry about doing what its primary focus is, which is the payments at the back end. Um, Klarna has, you know changed and evolved over the years. They've been very app-centric, um, but uh, re- more recently, um, you know, they just want to be the way you pay for everything, whether that's today, tomorrow, or split over three payments in the future. Um, and I agree with some of Sophie's points about, you know, they want to diversify away from buy now, pay later because of the risk that is in, you know, around that that topic and that sector, um, and I think they're doing it really well. Um, you know, they're, I, I use Klarna all the time, whether I'm paying now or paying later, um, because my details are all there already. It makes perfect sense. I don't use the app, but that's maybe that's for a slightly younger generation. Um, so yeah, it's great to see this kind of peace between these two companies, who otherwise may be competing um, at checkout, but they don't. They really don't need to because they can both focus on what they do best. Um, and and work together. So yeah, it's a, I think it's a great example of a really good partnership. And BNPL is risky, as you said, Oliver. Um, but Sophie, you know why why not just be the best at BNPL? Why not just do BNPL? Why why try and become this super app? We've got a high interest rate environment. You can make more money out of BNPL, whether or not that's ethical. <laughs> Let's talk about it. I mean, why not just be BNPL? You know, I think I think um, kind of what Oliver was saying around. The regulatory environment, and um, we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, that actually hasn't come to fruition. I know that the UK was really sort of kicking up a fuss and, and going to apply a lot of regulation, and Klarna said, "Fine, we'll, we'll leave," and, and then they sort of, um, sort of brought it, rolled it back. But I also think that the interesting thing about Klarna, and they've done a lot of work around sort of applying AI to their data and being that um, sort of like personal support at checkout is that now they have this 
the wedge product was buy now, pay later. It was innovation. It was ne- it needed at the time, and customers loved it. But now you have that really interesting um, position. Why not use that to um, embed further into the checkout, or to use that data to support customers in their shopping experience more? And if you're the CEO of that company and you see that opportunity, and you're already there, and you're getting pressure from the regulator. You know, I think as a shareholder of that business, I would want them to diversify away from that. Comes back to data, doesn't it? We've got all of this wonderful data, as you say. I mean, there's so many other companies over the years that have tried to do that. I mean, I remember Groupon, for example, years and years ago. This was the big thing, right? By by buying a Groupon, all of a sudden, actually, we're not talking just about the Groupon. We are talking about loyalty, an entirely new way of doing branding and marketing and kind of look how they ended up, right? So it'd be really interesting to see what, what happens over the um, over the next few years. And we've seen Klarna do that with with you know points, and they're they're getting into the kind of credit card loyalty kind of vibe as well, which is interesting. Um, my kind of prediction, I, I think Christmas is always a bit of a catalyst for these um, for the kind of regulatory questions because we're we're about to go through the very expensive shopping season. A lot of people will be turning to buy now, pay later. And then the fallout of that will be January, February next year, when the headlines on AltFi and other places, I'm sure, around how shoppers, you know, they, they turned to their credit cards and then they loaded up on buy now, pay later as well. Um, and then that will cause headaches because policymakers will have the limelight shined on them as saying, you know, you've been promising regulation for years, still we're waiting. Um, so maybe next year there'll be some activity around that. But then again, there's an election next year. So it's all up for grabs. Let's wait and see, see how it goes. All right. Now on to our next segment, Big Click Energy. And I always have to be careful how I say that. <laughs> a quick look at some of the more clickworthy news this week. And this one is from Fintech Times, Wave and Gravy. I think that's Gravy. That's G-R-4-G-Y. I'm, I'm going to say Gravy. Wave and Gravy bring pay-by-bank solution to merchants across Australia. Open banking provider Wave and payments company Gravy are teaming up to roll out the new payment service to thousands of Aussie retailers. Pay-by-bank means merchants bypass any surcharges and eliminated third parties or the sharing of card details. Ben Zill, CEO of Wave, says for too long merchants have been held to ransom. The technology now exists to offer seamless, fast and secure payments without the ridiculous cost. Australia is one of the earlier adopters of open banking regulation, with its open banking regime launching in July 2019. For me, the key here is what Benzil said um, around the ridiculous cost. So the, the, the focus I, I think that you're seeing across the entire fintech industry this year and into the next few years is around cost optimization. And transaction fees are very, very expensive. Open banking fees are very, very cheap. That's one of the allures behind open banking. If you can cross the customer experience issues and moving from your banking app to the checkout provider and back to your banking app all the other way around, then you can mitigate some of those costs. And so there is the potential if you solve that for this industry to grow. I also find it really interesting that the first retailer to adopt this is a barbecue company. There's something very, very Australian about that, which I love. Right, on to the next one. And this one is from Finextra. Barclays announced branch closures amid rumors of a £1 billion cost-cutting plan. 
The announcement of 18 more closures means there are now 34 branches to shut its door next year. This comes after Barclays are reported to be making up to £1 billion in cost-cutting measures. It is also reported that thousands of staff in the UK could be at risk of losing their jobs next year, and the bank is looking to streamline its operations. I think it's important to say that branch closures have been really controversial for many, many years now. Um, when the very first wave of mobile banking came in, there was a huge concern that people would be left unbanked effectively, you know, without access to critical banking services. And Labour have put it in their their manifesto that they want to see um, guaranteed access to cash for people across the UK. I mean, Barclays will be will be very keen to emphasize that a branch closure does not necessarily mean a lack of access to cash. You know, they can provide their services through post offices and libraries, for example. I think the other the other component about branch closures is the impact of the high street. Um, just on my street alone, for example, you know, two or three branches which shut years and years ago remain boarded up, and you know, one of them has been occupied by um, squatters. So it, it's very difficult to see what happens, and the the potential layoffs from the cost cutting um, are terrible. But Barclays are not the only bank in the world at the moment looking at cost reductions and streamlining efficiencies. So it uh, it's it's a bit of a bleak picture in that sense. All right. And now it's time for the and finally section of the show. I look at something more offbeat from the news this week. And this news is actually directly from NatWest. NatWest create a board game. Yes, that's right. A board game to educate people about modern scams. The new game called All Mod Cons is designed to educate the nation about top modern scams, with players dodging real-life scams to hold on to their cash. The game is available to play in select branches across the UK throughout December. NatWest saw a 41% increase in purchase scams in the last four months of 2022, and 17% of British adults say they receive more scam approaches at Christmas. However, a quarter of adults feel uncomfortable admitting they have been a fraud victim. A festive campaign will run alongside the rollout fronted by television presenter Jeff Brazier and his son Freddie. It's meant to encourage families to have a more open discussion about fraud. I have to admit, when I looked at the TV commercial, I wasn't entirely sure whether this was sarcasm. I feel like had this been launched in April, I would have thought maybe it was an April Fool's joke. But you know, we, we, we definitely know that, that fraud is a huge problem. And hey, you know, banks launching board games. Why not? What do you think, Oliver? They've got a good, good reason to go to a NetWest branch. Um, I don't think I've been to a bank branch. Gosh five years pre-COVID. Um, so finally, finally a reason to go into a real bank branch. Um, I, I guess my, my reaction is, obviously, there's a bit of a, a marketing, you know, machine going on here. It's a, it's a great um, bit of a marketing stunt. Um, but at its core, there is a challenge. There's a real challenge, which is that banks are increasingly responsible and, and liable for the kind of scams and frauds that are being targeted at their customers. Um, it's in their best interest for their customers to be better informed because, you know, the, the, the current lay of the land is that in the future, they will be liable to reimburse their customers, certainly for authorized push payment fraud, um, within a, a very short number of days. So I think it's, it's a marketing stunt, but there's also a very, there's an undertone of nervousness among banks because they know that the, the check is going to land at their, do- their door eventually. 
Yeah, Oliver, as you say, it's definitely going to be an increasing issue. Um, and also, why not a board game? As you say, we can now all start going to the branches. Maybe all the banks should start launching their own, their own board games so we could go to branches. I also love the title, All Mod Cons. Any, any thoughts on, on that? Anyone? I think they're just trying very hard to, I guess, move away from what can feel like a dull and preachy way of doing scam education. And we we have a similar thing with WISE. We're trying to think about how you do educate customers and you try and, you know, gain a bit of interest. So you do something slightly kind of quirky. Um, we have a scam education actually going on at the moment, a campaign about like holiday bookings because apparently they again spike around Christmas. So uh, we've launched something like called a faux sure, which is basically like a fake holiday brochure, sort of trying to show the red flags that you can look out for. But um, yeah, I mean, scams are becoming more sophisticated. They are targeting people very well. And I think, yeah, there is a lot of need for the scam education. Um, we'll see uh, varying degrees of success, I'm sure, with different campaigns from companies. I guess AI is also going to make it even worse. I mean, there should be a tidal wave coming of uh, a fraud ahead of us. Sophie, would you launch your own board game? Is that a fintech investment you can make in the future? A fintech board game? I mean, would everyone in this call buy it? I, there are a lot of fintech nerds in the world. Like, I feel like, you know, it, and it could explain, like, what about a board game that explains the payments flow and, like, acquiring bank? And, yes. Like, and then we could all... <laughs> snakes and ladders, that could be the new snakes and ladders. how the hell it works. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would love to know. I would play that board game because I would absolutely love to know how it all works. And on that note, <laughs> we all would. <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right, I'm on it. All right, next time, this time next year. Do it. It's going to be the next yeah. unicorn. And on that note, thank you all so much. And uh, that wraps up this week's FinTech Insider. Um, where can people find out a bit more about each of you? Sophie? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Sophie Winwood. Um, and if you want to find more about WBC, it's WBC.tech. And Roisin? Um, I'm on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And if you want to know more about Wise Platform, um, yeah, we also have a website. So just Google Wise Platform. And Oliver. Yep. Uh, Twitter or X, um, Oliver Smith EU. Although I would say go to LinkedIn. I, I don't use Twitter that much anymore. Um, go to LinkedIn or better yet, come to altfi.com for all the latest fintech news. Yeah, me too. Um, I'm mostly just on LinkedIn these days. Um, I'm sure there's a, another podcast episode to explain why that is i don't know um and you can find me on linkedin.com um david bg that's me david martin grimley and thank you for listening um you can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com thanks very much goodbye <laughs>